I try to picture the man that I want to be 20 years from now. Who is going to be the 64-year-old Alan? And almost every single decision that I make in my life, uh, I run through a binary filter of, is this making this decision right now, is this going to take me closer to being that guy? Or is it going to take me further away from being that guy? And when I can put it through that filter, most decisions become really crystal clear and really easy. I think that's really important to view the world through that binary filter. And I'm choosing to make that even a smaller filter now during this quarantine. You know, whenever this thing is over, it could be in three weeks, three months, who knows. But I'm committed to being better when that finish line approaches than I am right now. So I have to ask myself, what am I doing right now that's going to allow me to get better? Hello and welcome to episode nine of the 50 Cups of Coffee podcast. I am your host, Bobby Audley. I am a speaker and trainer with the Pinot Training Group, where we work with teams and organizations looking to create powerful, positive, peak performance team cultures. This podcast is a show that was inspired by my 2016 TEDx talk called the 50 Cups of Coffee Challenge. Go check that out on YouTube if you haven't already. In the talk, I challenge you to sit down for a conversation with 50 people in a year. That number might sound big until you fully appreciate this is not all about networking. It is about connection. Connect with your kids, your spouse, your friends, your family. Connect, connect, connect. This is a message we need now more than ever. I do not know where you are listening from. Our audience is across the United States and in nine countries total. But here in Maryland, where I live, we are now about two weeks into our social distancing campaign to help stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus. During this time, we need to be more intentional than ever before about ensuring we connect with our community as we stay home. If you do have school-aged kids that are home from school right now, and especially athletes who are without their spring sport or their, their spring training for their sport, this next update may be of interest to you. As I have mentioned before on this podcast, I am a youth lacrosse coach, and we as an organization work with many athletes across the country. Right now, one of our offerings is becoming quite popular and useful for many people. We offer a five-week, one-on-one peak performance coaching program specifically designed for young athletes. The objective of the program is to create and maintain a powerful, positive, and peak performance daily routine to stay on track with your athletic goals. With seasons canceled and school either online or canceled, this coaching program done using Zoom is an opportunity for your student-athlete to develop and enhance the gains they made this year and ensure he or she doesn't lose those gains. Instead, they build themselves up and prepare daily for when their sport or training starts back up again. They hone their edge during this time of quarantine and social distancing. The first session of the program is a no-cost conversation of defining your goals, acknowledging your challenges or roadblocks, and creating a daily routine to set yourself up for success this spring. If that is all your athlete needs, awesome. We are genuinely here to serve during this difficult and strange time for athletes. I cannot imagine if in high school or college, my lacrosse season was canceled and I was left home to figure it out on my own. We are here to help. If after session one, your athlete is interested in the full five-week program, awesome. Sincerely, either decision is fine with me any way we can help. 
To schedule a session or simply learn more, message me on social at Bobby Audley or head on over to PinotTrainingGroup.com, click on contact and fill out the form. In the comments portion of the form, simply write athlete coaching program. As I did last week to do our part to help out small businesses during this time of social distancing, I am going to be shouting out some of my favorite coffee shops where you can buy their coffee online during this time. If you are taking on the 50 cups of coffee challenge at home, you might as well have some great coffee and support small businesses while you're at it. These are not ads and we are not sponsored by any of the shops I mention. These are simply favorites of mine. Last week, we gave a shout out to RoastUmber.com. This week, I am shouting out a longtime favorite of mine and local Maryland roaster, Rise Up Coffee Roasters. Grown by friends, roasted by friends, enjoyed by friends. This time of year, I always look forward to taking a drive out to the beach and stopping by their locations in Annapolis, Easton, Cambridge, Salisbury, and now Rehoboth. And yes, I do tend to stop at each one. During this difficult time, you can head over to riseupcoffee.com. They have a limited release coffee made in partnership with Dogfish Head called Booze for Breakfast. They have a coffee delivery subscription program for you, or you could simply grab a bag of your favorite blend of beans. And according to their Instagram page, Maryland and Delaware residents get free shipping by using code LOCAL, L-O-C-A-L, at checkout. Again, this is not an ad or paid sponsorship. Rise Up doesn't even know I am doing this. I am just trying to do my part to help out small businesses that I support during this time. My guest on today's episode is Alan Stein Jr., a successful business owner and veteran basketball performance coach. Alan spent 15 years working with the highest performing athletes on the planet, including NBA superstars Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and Kobe Bryant. On today's episode, Alan shares two stories about KD and Kobe that are two of my all-time favorites. And in the outro to the very first episode of this podcast, I dedicated the entire series, the entire show to Kobe Bryant because he passed shortly before this podcast launch and the way he lived his life, the way he played basketball and the way he was instilling those principles in his family has inspired me in the way I show up. And, and so sitting down and chatting with Alan about this story was, was in, an, in, an, in and of itself a favorite moment of mine. Today, Alan is a keynote speaker, author, and performance expert who teaches proven strategies to improve organizational performance, create effective leadership, increase team cohesion, and collaboration, and develop winning mindsets, rituals, and routines. In his corporate keynote programs and workshops, Alan reveals how to utilize the same approaches in business that elite athletes use to perform at a world-class level. He delivers practical lessons that can be implemented immediately. Some of Alan's clients include American Express, Pepsi, Sabra, Starbucks, Charles Schwab, and numerous athletic programs across the country. Alan is the author of Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best, a book endorsed by the likes of Kevin. Kevin Durant, Jay Wright, John Gordon, and the foreword is written by Jay Billis. Needless to say, Alan has not only worked with the best of the best, he has gained the respect of the best of the best, and you are about to find out why. A small production note, Alan and I live 30 minutes from each other and had every intention of meeting up in person for this episode, and we decided not to due to the current call for social distancing. Technically, we could have. 
two people getting together is not against the rules and we live close enough to each other to make that happen. And I am currently getting together with my parents and siblings right now, albeit sparingly at that, and they are my chosen quarantine buddies. And Alan has his kids and his family, and those are his chosen quarantine buddies. So us getting together would add to our points of contact if either of us were to discover in the coming weeks that we had the coronavirus and did not know it. I say that because I love an in-person conversation that has been my commitment with this podcast and flattening the curve of this virus is far more important than what I want to do or what Alan wants to do. And it's more important than what you want to do. This is my way of leading by example and saying set aside your your wants and, and and replace them with what our world needs right now and our world needs each of us to social distance. We recorded this conversation using Zoom and there are a few moments of Wi-Fi hiccups, but for the most part, it, it seems pretty solid. I do have pre-recorded interviews still on the tank for the upcoming weeks ahead, and I knew Alan would have very relevant advice for raising your game during this time of quarantine and social distancing. I will have guests coming up where I also use Zoom if I find that what they have to share will serve you during this time. Whether you are an athlete or corporate athlete, a parent, or just looking to adjust to this new normal, this interview is going to serve you in a massive way. Please enjoy my cup of coffee with Alan Stein Jr. Back in 2007, Nike flew me out to Los Angeles to work the first ever Kobe Bryant Skills Academy. And just so your listeners are familiar with, with myself, you know, basketball has been a major pillar in my life for my entire life. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, I, I fell in love with the game at four or five years old. And here, four decades later, basketball is still a major pillar in my life. And having grown up in that basketball bubble, I had always heard this urban legend of how insanely intense Kobe's individual workouts were. And since I found myself on his camp staff, I figured this was as good a chance as any uh, to, to ask if I could watch one of his workouts. And uh, the first thing I remember was just how open and gracious he was and really early morning workouts. And uh, I remember that, that when I went to see him, I was shocked at the simplicity of what he was doing. I mean, he was focusing on very basic fundamentals. And, and as a younger coach at that time, I just assumed that the best player in the world was going to be doing some really fancy and sexy drills. You know, I expected to see some really out of the box stuff. And instead for the first 45 minutes, I watched the best player on the planet do basic pivoting drills and basic offensive moves. I mean, he was doing stuff that I had actually done with middle school age players. Now, of course this was Kobe Bryant. I mean, it's the black Mamba. So he was doing everything with razor sharp precision and he was doing everything with just unparalleled focus and intensity but the drills he was doing was incredibly basic. And I just remember being blown away by that, that I, I couldn't believe that he paid such great detail and homage to, to the basics. And his whole workout lasted a few hours. It wasn't just doing the basics, but that's how he set the table. And later that day, I went up to him and asked about his workout and, and really said, hey, I don't understand, Kobe. You're the best player in the world. You know, why are you doing such basic drills? And I remember it like it was yesterday, and it still makes the hairs on my neck stand up. Uh, he just smiled, but he said with all seriousness, why do you think I'm the best player in the world? And then there was a silence for a couple of seconds, 
And he said, because I never get bored with the basics. And, you know, to me that that's something that many people probably think is obvious that if you want to be good at something, you embrace the fundamentals and the basics. Uh, but I don't see very many people doing that. It's something that we all know, but very few people do. And, uh, I think many people are under the assumption, just like I was, that a guy like Kobe would spend all of his time doing these really elaborate workouts and these crazy, and nothing could be further from the truth. You know, he cemented in the basics and he never got away from those. And, and that's a principle that I use to guide my life now. Uh, in every area of life that I, I aim to be excellent or extraordinary, I make sure that I continually focus on those basic building blocks. And I find that anytime I'm not performing at the level that I believe I'm capable of. When I unpack it a little bit with some humility, I realize that I've been skipping over the basics and I have to get back to them. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and what I love about that story is after Kobe passed, you know, there was a just an outpouring of, of love for him and appreciation for him and across the world. And I, I, at the time, reflected on the fact that years and years and years from now, there are going to be people that have never heard of Kobe Bryant. And when they hear about him, they'll ask about him and they'll learn about his death and the outpouring that came from it. And I'm sure the question will be asked, well, why, you know, he was a basketball player. Why was there such outpouring? And in my belief, he connected with so many people because of that belief, because we don't, as human beings, we don't connect with the God-given natural talent, which Kobe obviously had. Of course. Connect with someone who works their fricking butt off to be the best that they can be. And he happened to also achieve being the best. And, and regardless, we connect with people that put in the work, that have the humility, that put in the effort, and, and then also seek to connect with others as well. So a nuance to your story is that you asked if you could come watch his workout. And he, I love how plainly you share. He said, yes, right? There was no caveat. There was no but there was no hesitancy. It was just, yes. And I've heard a lot of stories since then of people who have had the opportunity to meet him that share that same thing, that he was just an open book. He was a connector with people. He was a human being and he was more than happy to let you in to see what he was all about. And sure. he, had, he had nothing to hide. He was an well, open Yeah. And, and you know, there's, there's two things that, that I, I, you know, since his passing have really come to light. And one, as I mentioned, you know, and I'd say I've, I've been in the professional corporate speaking world for four years now. So I, I've given several hundred uh, talks, so, you know, keynotes, workshops to a variety of different groups. And that's always the very first story uh, that I lead with because it sets the tone for everything else. And I mean, it was amazing how many people personally reached out to me when he passed just to say something to the effect of, you know, Alan, you don't know me. You spoke at our event a year ago, but I'll never forget that lesson that you taught us from Kobe. So they, they weren't really reaching out for me, but more to say that they were touched by the lesson that he taught me that I then shared with them. So mm -hmm. it was something I was incredibly proud of. And, and I continue to lead and open every, you know, workshop and training with it, just like we opened this podcast, uh, because I believe it's that important. And I, I think it's even more important now uh, to share that to really honor his legacy. And the other thing I'll say is it's too bad that he wasn't able to live long enough for us to see that he was applying that same principle to his life after basketball, that, that what he was trying to you know, accomplish um, with the books he was publishing and the, the, the movies and things he was making and, and everything he was doing in the business world, he was applying that same philosophy of sticking to the basics. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's just remarkable. And you know, it certainly appeared, you know, because I don't know him well, that, mm -hmm. that, 
you know, he had the same love and affinity for pursuing his new craft as he did for basketball. And, and he was able to, you know, translate that from one industry to the next, which is even more proof that all of us can and should be living by that mantra of never getting bored with the basics. Yeah, well, it's another thing you've said and I've said before of, of the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And Kobe lived that. And uh, this podcast, the whole thing launched uh, February of this year. So the first episode, I it was shortly after he, he died. So I dedicated the whole podcast to him, which was it, it was in my uh, either, I think it was in my outro. So at the end of the episode and it was a long outro. So who knows how many people actually listened to it, but I, uh, I, I put that in there for my own kind of nod to saying, here's an example of you and I are both in the space of saying, uh, here's what we learned from our years of sports that applies to every aspect of life. And what you just said was so perfect because he embodied that wholeheartedly and was just, again, I felt it's, it's the reason you start with it and we started with it because it's just a great story to in, encapsulate uh, what, what you do and how you show up. Uh, so I think it, it's a fitting story for you. And uh, so thanks. Thanks for telling it here. Um, I will encourage folks and we can even put some links in there to check out your cool TEDx talk and also um, the, the cool pump up videos that have been made uh, yeah. uh, with that story in there. But share a little bit about. Um, so for years, you were a, a performance coach, correct, in, in basketball, and you started at DeMatha, uh, correct, or at least you worked there for a number of years. Talk a little bit, uh, you know, this isn't necessarily a biographical podcast, but I always like to say no one will hear you until they know you. So yes. a little bit of kind of who you are, I guess, I'll, I'll be specific, um, how you got into being a performance coach for basketball and how you got an opportunity to work with some of these best players in the world most certainly you know if I had to break down the best advice that I've ever been given uh and I was at a very young age um and, and I heard this from a few different mentors and people in my life they said basically find what it is that you're passionate about find what it is that you're pretty good at and then find where those two things intersect and that point of intersection is, is your strength zone and if you can spend as much time in your strength zone as possible, uh, certainly your performance and your achievement will go up, but you'll also be happier and more fulfilled. Uh, and the reason I share that is, you know, basketball has been my driving passion for most of my life. And when it was very clear to me that my playing days were going to be over, um, that I needed to find something else that, that I was good at and passionate about that could keep me connected to the game. And you know, I'm, I'm 44 years old, so I graduated high school in 1994. Uh, and in, in the late 90s, basketball performance training and strength and conditioning was really in its infancy. You know, there were not very many people doing this, um, but it was something that I was really attracted to. You know, throughout high school and college, uh, I got really interested in improving athleticism and being able to improve my vertical jump and, and running faster and getting stronger. So uh, when I graduated college, I thought that that point of intersection for me was going to be intersecting basketball and performance training with something that I had a natural inclination to do, which was coach and to teach and to be around people. Um, so I, I followed that lead and, and that was where that point of intersection took me, which was to be a basketball performance coach. And you know, very similar to Malcolm Gladwell's premise in Outliers, uh, that, that when you do something is just as important as what you do. Uh, I'm very thankful that when I got into the basketball performance space in the late 90s, early 2000s, as I just mentioned, hardly anyone else was doing it. So it was not a very crowded space at the time, which allowed me 
a lot of opportunities and, and to, to be able to do a lot of things because there wasn't very much competition. And uh, being able to, you know, prove that I could add value to a basketball camp or event or team is what got me in first at, at Montrose Christian, which is where Kevin Durant graduated from, and then eventually at DeMatha, uh, who's had a whole host of NBA players. And being able to work for those two elite programs opened doors for Nike basketball, USA basketball, Jordan brand. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm very confident in my ability and I was very good at what I did, but I also recognized that I it was the perfect timing, you know, that right now if somebody tried to get in with Nike or Jordan brand or USA basketball, they'd be standing in a really, really long line. And yeah. because there wasn't much of a line when I started, it allowed me to get into some places and, and I'm very thankful for that. And, and yeah. I did that for almost 20 years and, and loved every minute of it, man. I, I love the game. Uh, I love serving players, um, you know, cause that's what I was so passionate about coming up. And I certainly love serving coaches. Uh, I believe coaches and teachers are two of the most altruistic professions in the world. Uh, people that give of their time and make unbelievable sacrifices to pour into young people. And I, I just have so much respect for the coaching fraternity that, you know, I was honored to be in that space for almost, you know, half of my life at that time. Yeah. And, and was it at, so were you working at Montrose Christian when, is that how you met Kevin Durant originally? Uh, I met him, I met him before. So we're both products of the DC area like yeah. yourself. And uh, I had met Kevin, uh, he was actually a sophomore in high school. He was at National Christian in Washington, DC. Uh, is when I first met him and we'd done some workouts and then he went to Oak Hill Academy for one year and then he came to Montrose for his senior year. So by the time he came to Montrose, Kevin and I had already had really established a really nice relationship. Yeah, well, that was in your book, the story that I most retell from your book. Anytime I interview an author on this, I like to, to let you know the story that I tell the most is, um, is I think it's the first time you met Kevin Durant and you talk about the workout you put him through and, and his response to it. I think if someone hasn't picked up your book, I'd love you to share that story right now as kind of a teaser as to some of the stuff that's Oh, certainly. That's you know, awesome it's, story. I mean, Kevin was only 15 at the time, um, but certainly showed so many signs of potential of being an unbelievable player. I mean, he had the physical gifts, uh, he was a gym rat. He loved to play. Uh, he was fundamentally sound. He had a very high basketball IQ, uh, but he was very slight of frame. I mean, it was obvious that the only thing that could prevent this kid from playing at a high level would be lack of strength and power and size. And as a performance coach, since that's what I specialized in, you know, I couldn't wait to get my hooks in him and, and have him come in for some workouts. And, and I remember that the first time he came in, I probably got a little bit too amped up uh, and, and went a little bit too hard because within about 30 minutes, he was just laying in a pile on the floor and I had absolutely hammered him. And I remember asking him if he liked the workout because Kevin didn't say anything throughout the entire workout. He was very socially quiet back then. Um, and very similar to the Kobe story. I mean, I remember this, I mean, viscerally, I remember how the gym smelled. I remember what it looked like. I remember the look he gave me. And he basically, when I asked him if he liked the workout, as serious as can be, he said, no, I didn't, but I know this is what I need to do if I ever want to play in the NBA. So when can I see you again, coach? And I just remember being so blown away that a 15-year-old had the type of maturity to understand that in order to get something he really wanted, he was going to have to make some changes and he was going to have to make some sacrifices to do that. And, and that's one thing that I, I, don't, I don't bag on young people like a lot of people do, but I do notice a current trend is uh, lots of people, not just young people, don't feel that they need to make sacrifices or commitments in order to get what they want. And, and I was so impressed that Kevin 
uh, recognized he was going to have to come in regularly and do something that was mentally, physically, and emotionally challenging, almost brutal. And he was still willing to do that because the tunnel was so important to him that he was willing to make these temporary sacrifices to get there. And at that point, I mean, there's no way I would have known he was going to matriculate up to be one of the top basketball players on the planet. But I knew at that point he was going to be a very special player because that was the last puzzle piece that was needed. He had all the physical and mental uh, components needed. But now to know that he was willing to make the sacrifice and had the drive to be that good, then I, I knew the sky was the limit for him. And, and when I share that story, um, the number one question I get back from people, and, and my response has always been, I'll ask Alan when I see him. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. You got me. And uh, is um, so that desire to want to do the work to get better. Um, can that the, I don't, I'm not necessarily as concerned of the question of are you born with it or is it developed? It's because I don't think whether we can't answer that. And it's, it's a waste of our time to think about it. My question is, can that be instilled in a young person? Can can a young person can, can as coaches and parents and mentors can we help a young person like that understand that, appreciate that desire? Um, and if so, how do we even try to do that? Because he brought that to you, but how do you get a, a kid who doesn't bring that to you to embrace it? For sure. Well, keep in mind too, that he brought that to me at 15 years old, which means someone or many someones planted a lot of seeds and modeled a lot of behavior for him before we met. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I have, uh, twin sons that that actually is the time of this recording just turned 10 yesterday and yes, I have a daughter congratulations that happy birthday to them I saw your post <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. and and I've been planting seeds with them since you know they, they could understand what I was saying because I don't I think as as teachers as coaches um, it's never too early to plant those seeds and uh, along those lines a big portion of planting seeds is modeling that type of behavior I mean I I want my own children and certainly the players that I used to work with and, and now the corporate clients I have, I want them to see that I make sacrifices in my life so that I can be the best version of myself in what it is that I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. And and that's incredibly important. You know, I want my children to know that I rehearse for every talk that I'm going to give. I want the client to know that I'm rehearsing. I don't want them to think I'm just going to show up and try and wing it. You know, that I, I take my job as a professional speaker very seriously. And it's a little different, you know, I guess it's, it's kind of similar in basketball. I mean, we could all sit around a bar and argue over who's the best player of all time. Um, I guess it's not as definitive. And it'd be the same thing in speaking. You know, um, you might have a list of who you think the best speakers are, and it might be different from my list, and there's no right answer. Uh, so I don't worry about the comparison portion. I just worry about, am I coming as close to maximizing my ability as a professional speaker as I can? Am I doing everything I can to show up as my best self to be of service to others? And I take that very seriously. And I do model that for my children. And I let them know that when they find what they're as passionate about as I am towards the speaking craft or as I was towards basketball, that I'm going to want them to do the same thing. That whatever it is they want to be excellent at, the recipe is be prepared to make sacrifices, make a commitment to the fundamentals during the unseen hours, and then just know that repetition is not punishment. That's how you get good at anything. And if you plant that seed over and over enough, uh, I do believe that, that that'll be very influential in the way they see the world as they get older.
Yeah. Well, I, I love I love the the answer of modeling because especially with kids, but with all people, um, it's not about what you do or say, or it's not about what you say. It's it's about what you do. Like they, they 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 are always watching. They're always paying attention, and and they are they're they're following the model you set. They're following the example you set. And, and I mean, when, when I would, and, and you're hundred percent right. And when I would show up for a, a strength workout at DeMatha with the team, I would be there 15 minutes early. Uh, I would make sure that I was dressed appropriately. You know, I made sure that if I had a snack, it was the type of snack that I would be okay with them eating. You know, I didn't roll in with a, a big gulp and a Snickers bar. You know, uh, I would make sure that they could see that I had a written practice plan out. Like I would leave it for them to see if I wasn't putting it up on the big whiteboard. You know, I would want them to walk in the room and unconsciously go, Coach Stein is prepared for this workout. He's mentally, physically, and emotionally prepared. He, he's technically prepared. Like he is ready for this workout. Well, I guess that's what I need to do. And clearly, the players that would be going through the workout, now they have a different type of preparation. You know, their preparation probably has a lot to do with the physical as well. But it's, it's the mindset of, I can't tell kids to show up and be prepared to give their best effort if I don't show up to be prepared to lead them with my best effort. And as you said so perfectly before, how you do anything is how you do everything. And no one is perfect. None of us in this world are batting a thousand. We're all going to make mistakes. So, you know, I would never tell you that in 20 years of being a performance coach, that there weren't times where I was more or less prepared or, you know, whatever the case may be, but we need to be as consistent with that as possible. And I've always believed that as a leader and as a coach or as a teacher or even a speaker, you simply can't ask people to do things that you are not willing to do yourself. You know, this, this has nothing to do with me being able to lift as much or run as fast as the players I'm working with, but I can't ask them to be on time if I'm not going to be on time. I can't ask them to be mentally prepared if I'm not mentally prepared. And, and, and that's incredibly important because you just said it perfectly. Uh, they're, they're always going to take what you do over what you say. Uh, and if those two things aren't in alignment, if what you're saying is different than what you're doing, you immediately undermine your credibility. And then it's almost impossible to coach someone to high performance if they don't trust, respect, or believe in you. Well, that's just it. They, they lose the trust and respect. I, I, as you're telling that story of, of the players showing up to the gym, I'm reminded of last season. So I coach a middle school lacrosse team in D.C. And last season, um, I have a rule that is a pretty simple rule for safety that while players are coming out to the field – we don't shoot on the goal because maybe yeah. someone's walking behind it or in front of it. Like we just play catch. And there was one day that I was in my head about something unrelated to practice and, and just thinking and playing with the ball on my stick and, and the players are coming out and I just I take a shot on goal and it was a light shot. Like it would just went in cage. And one of my players goes, Hey coach, I thought we didn't shoot on the goal. And my immediate response in my head, thankfully I didn't say it out loud, was going to be, well, I'm the coach, right? Like, is it that means anything? And I caught myself and I said, you're right. And uh, did my own push-ups. Like, that's our, it was it's just like, they're middle school kids. I'm not making them sprint and grind for mistakes, but it's a quick, like, 10 push-ups or whatever. And, uh, um, and we moved on. And, and in that moment, it's a simple nuance, but in that moment, I was just struck how quickly I was about to make a separation between me and them and say, well, I'm the coach, so I can do whatever I want. And I've been a part of teams that do that. And those coaches aren't awful. They're not the worst coaches I ever had, but we certainly didn't have a culture that 
that was led by us just embodying that coach. Whereas I had another coach growing up, Coach Spillett is a high school coach I'll never forget. And he would always do the sprints with us, do the stairs with us, do the runs with us. And, and it got, he ended up, um, he had a brain tumor passed away my sophomore year of high school and part of why I'll never forget him is because he continued to do those exercises with us the stairs you name it through his his chemo through his body bloating from steroids all this stuff and and you sit back and say he didn't he was doing that simply because that to him was coaching if he's going to show up and be our coach he can't say well I'm going to do that and not do this it was yes. all, it was a part of coaching for him was doing what he's asking us to do. And, and I, you know, two, two things that resonate. And I appreciate you sharing that so much, you know, um, uh, one, which I think is incredibly important was that you showed some humility and vulnerability in allowing a middle school player to hold you accountable. And, and I think that's tremendous that you did that. And, and you might not even realize uh, not only how much goodwill that that probably did, but just the example that that set. Um, so it's incredibly important, and I'm, I'm glad you're able to do that. I believe as a leader and as a coach, uh, we should readily admit our mistakes mm-hmm. and, and when we make uh, a misjudgment. And, you know, if it's appropriate, you apologize for it, you move on from it, um, but it's important to acknowledge it. And, and I think the more you can show your team, whether they're middle schoolers or they're in the corporate world, the more you can show them that you are human and you are relatable uh, then the more likely they are to follow your lead because they're saying, hey, this is what Coach Bobby does on a regular basis. This is what I need to be doing. And that's, you know, uh, that's, that's so important. And I'm, yeah. I'm glad that you were able uh, to do that. And especially with middle school age kids, you know, we have to make sure that we're, we're planting those seeds with, with everything. And then as far as the, the coach that you mentioned that had passed away, um, I've always been a believer, especially in the sporting world, players have a high respect for coaches that are willing to sweat with them. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, let me say that if, if you are 65 years old and you are coaching elite level high school basketball players, it might not be even safe for you to try to do what they're doing. But when I say sweat with them, I'm talking about proverbially rolling up your sleeves and getting down and dirty with them. You know, if, if you're 65 years old and you are not in the shape of an elite athlete, I'm not saying you have to run sprints or bench press with your players, but you can get in there and rebound, or you can be a passer, or you can do something that gets on the player's level and shows them that you are fully committed, even in the physical, to being able to serve them. And, and I think that's really, an, you know, it's an important component. And, and same thing in the corporate world. Instead of sweating, like if you're the CEO and your sales team is having an issue, you know, you don't, you don't try to help them from an ivory tower. Get down there and on the floor with them and make some calls with them or role play with them or do something that shows the sales team, hey, I'm on your level and I'm in this with you. Uh, This is not me uh, handing down mandates and orders. Uh, This is me walking alongside you. And and I just think for coaches, we all have to find the level at which we can do that. You know, when I was coaching elite level players and I was in my early 20s, you know, I I could run with them decently. once I got to be in my late 30s, you know, I, I wasn't able to keep up with them. So I'd have to find other ways to sweat with them. But it was all about showing them that I cared so much that I wanted to be in this with them and that there was no separation between us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm always impressed. You know, you and I both speak to a lot of organizations. And I spoke to an organization a couple months ago. And the, it, it was a regional group. So we were the, it, I was speaking to just the Minnesota chapter, but they have chapters in every state. And the, 
headquarters is in Washington, D.C. Their CEO was, was part of the introduction. So she gave an interest. They introduced the governor of the state, and then I came after that. It was a cool event. And, uh, but um, what most impressed me was the CEO ended up staying for the entire presentation, and uh, we connected on LinkedIn afterward, and she had some real nice things to say. And for her, it was probably just like a little, like a small note, right? Hey, enjoyed your presentation. For me, I was blown away that she stayed because I've experienced a lot of other organizations where that's not the case, where the CEO is at this conference and they'll do the intro, but they got a lot of other meetings to get to, and, and they don't stay in the room for, quite frankly, I, I think I gave a great keynote and uh, you're making your employees sit through this thing. Like you're at a conference, you got this great kickoff and, and I don't know how excited everyone is for the motivational speaker to come out. And, and, uh, and so for her to even stay in the room and be a part of that. And, and I've since learned that that's how she does things is what you're saying. How, how often can I be a part of what I'm asking my people to do and serve and support in that way and not just give orders from the ivory tower and then, and then go on to what's next for my, my team. And she modeled that. I mean, I guarantee you weren't the only one that noticed that she stayed. I mm -hmm. bet her entire team said, look at her. She's here taking notes with us, you mm -hmm. know, because if she's telling us to be here and telling us that this is important for us to listen to Bobby, well, that's one thing she's showing us, that it's important to stay here and listen to Bobby. Like that's, that makes all the difference in the world. And, you know, uh, again, I know, um, especially with CEOs, they have so many responsibilities that those types of things are not always an option. So I don't pass judgment if, if someone excuses themselves and they can't be there. Uh, because for all I know, in the last hundred conferences, they've sat in on 99 of them and they simply can't sit in on mine. I don't pass judgment. Right. But you can usually tell when you meet someone what their behavior is going to be like. Uh, along those same lines, as a professional speaker, anytime I can, uh, I arrive well in advance of my talk and I try to sit in and watch other speakers. Uh, one, because I want to do my due diligence and I, you know, if you were speaking before me, uh, I'd want to make some callbacks and reference the things that you said because I think it gives the whole event more continuity. Uh, but even more important, uh, at that time, they probably don't even know that I'm a speaker. They're like, who's this guy, random guy we've never seen before sitting here taking notes. And then when I get on stage, they're like, wait a second, that guy got here three hours early to take notes and he didn't have to, but he did. And I think that gives me more credibility on stage that we're willing to walk the walk. And, and I just believe that that's so important. And, and not to mention that if I were to sit in and watch someone like you speak, I'm going to learn stuff. So, you know, what, what is it? Sit in my hotel room and not learn anything or watch you speak and pick up some new nuggets. To me, it's an easy trade um, or an easy decision, but I just think it, it goes back to that. We have to be modeling everything that we want any of our people to do, whether it's uh, you know, a father to, to, to child, whether it's CEO to employee, or whether it's head coach to player, we have to make sure we're modeling what we want to see from our people. Yeah. Well, and, and since we're on this conversation of leaders modeling what they want to see, um, Obviously, you know, as a performance coach for years, you were focused on the individual peak performance. Um, in your book, my favorite chapter, because of the work I do, is the chapter titled Culture. And a big part of what I do is creating effective, what we call positive 
powerful and peak performance cultures within teams and organizations. And you shared some great stories in there. Uh, one of them that really stood out to me was uh, the Coach K story. And it's actually, I thought of this as I took the note because you got it from Paul Rabel's podcast. And now I want to share it here. But also, um, Paul Rabel's podcast is a, a big reason. I, I was inspired by a number of different people in the podcast world, and he was one of them. I love suiting up. He's since transitioned into more of a PLL podcast. But, uh, and it's, I, as a lacrosse fan, I still love it. But suiting up was so awesome uh, just to hear athletes and people involved in sport talk about all aspects of life, which inspired me to do this. So uh, shout out to Paul Rabel and, and the Suiting Up podcast, which is still available to go listen to if you haven't heard it yet. And um, But there was kind of a story in there. I think it was he interviewed Jay Williams just talking about when Coach K recruited him. And I thought that was a great story to talk about. I mean, I think the subtitle of that story was culture of connection which which is exactly what we always try to preach so if you could share maybe if you share that story if you can put you on the spot but also even just the, the the lessons you've learned from being a fan of coach k's culture i think would be really relevant right now yeah and and i say unapologetically that i've been a diehard coach k fan for most of my coaching career and it, it all started with reading some of his early work um leading with the heart you know, I'm certainly biased, but I think is one of the best leadership books ever written. Um, and and if, for those that have a disdain for Coach K because they don't like Duke, if you can just look past it, he's the guy writing it. The principles in that book uh, have so much utility and are, and are timeless. Um, since then, I've, I've met Jay Williams several times and, and we've actually become friends. And yeah, I mean, when he would share, I mean, the re you're talking about a kid that, that could have played pretty much anywhere and he chose Duke because the connection he, re, he, he had from Coach K and that Coach K showed him that he cared about Jay as a person first and as a basketball player second. And, and I think that's what a lot of programs get wrong. You know, they, they try to pump you up and talk about minutes and starting and how many points you'll score and, you know, how quickly you'll get to the NBA and all of the things that have to do with on the court and they don't pay enough attention to the things that are off the court. And, you know, um, clearly hindsight's 2020 now, but with Jay Williams' motorcycle accident where basketball was literally taken away from him in an instant, now all of this off the court stuff becomes a lot more important. And, you know, and the Duke culture, I think, prepared Jay and helped prepare him uh, for what he's doing now. And he's, you know, he's one of the, the best folks as an analyst on ESPN and, and is, has a, just a tremendous career uh, and I think a lot of it stems from that culture. And, you know, I, I think from a culture standpoint, it's important for people to realize that every organization, whether it's a nuclear family at home or a sports team or uh, a Fortune 500 company, every organization has a culture. It's just a question of whether it's a positive one that was designed with intention or is it a, a negative one that you've kind of walked backwards into. But every organization has a culture. And uh, really the way I look at culture to break it down is – you know, you've, you've got your beliefs, but then you've got your behavior. You, you've got what you believe to be true. And that's usually the mission statement and the vision and what we like to talk about. But then how closely the, does that align with what you and your people do on a daily basis? And uh, if, there is, if there's a gap between those two, I believe you have a very weak culture. You know, if you're going to talk about things like accountability and effective communication and, and stuff that we've already touched on, but then you don't live that on a daily basis, your culture is not very strong. And, you know, I've always believed um, that the way you can define an organization's culture is how they behave when the person in charge is not there. You know, how would your middle schoolers have behaved if you didn't show up for practice one day? 
You know, would they have tried to collect themselves and organize and run their own practice? And if so, would it have been designed in a way similar to what you would have had them do? Or would they all have just said, yay, Coach Bobby's not here. We can all go home now. You know, it would have been one of those two things or within a few degrees of one of those two things. And whichever one they chose would actually speak volumes of the culture that you had created there. And, you know, I've, when I've shared that with some folks, that can often be a very uncomfortable, eye-opening experience. You know, I do a lot of work directly with executives and I'll do retreats with CEOs and I'll say, okay, you guys have committed to being here for three or four days. Raise your hand and I want you to be honest. If you're a little bit nervous about what's going on back at the office because you're here and inevitably a few of them raise their hand and I say, respectfully, that means you don't quite have the culture that you probably hope that you have. If you're worried that you can't leave for two or three days and things will continue to run smoothly, then you haven't created the culture of excellence that allows you to be able to do that. And that's a problem. And thankfully, they're all very open to that and receptive to that and say, oh, wow, that's a great point. We need to start making some changes. Yeah. What are So if those folks raise their hands, um, what do you get into after that? What are some of the changes you, for that point specifically, uh, you want your, your team, I think right now is, is really effective with so many people working remotely and athletes at home. Um, maybe it's, it's a little bit of hindsight because if someone's listening to this, they're not going to be able to implement right away, but so that we can prepare for the next crisis. Um, how do you lead in such a way so that your team continues to perform at a peak level, even when you're not there? Well, I think it was, a, I think it's a John C. Maxwell-ism. It's certainly not mine. I don't want to take credit for it, but it's something along the lines of, you know, great leaders don't create followers. They create other leaders. Mm-hmm. And, and whoever did say that is right on the money. And I think, you know, being a great leader, it's about um, empowering other people to make decisions. It's about giving them a certain level of autonomy so they feel comfortable making decisions. It's about you know, teaching people what it is that they need to do, not just telling them what they need to do. You know, it's, it's that old proverb of, you know, teach a man to fish, uh, or, you know, as opposed to just giving him some fish. Right. And that's so important. So I think um, for those CEOs that raise their hand, when I make that example, they're probably looking back and going, you know what, I probably haven't empowered my team enough. I probably haven't given them the autonomy to make decisions on their own. You know, um, and that's important to realize. And, and one of the examples I use, uh, and I, I don't know the, the year off the top of my head, I want to say it was 2016 or 17, but um, the Golden State Warriors, I mean, they were, they were looking like they were going to be a dynasty. I mean, they were untouchable in the NBA. And Steve Kerr, their head coach, uh, missed almost the entire season with a major back injury and surgery and so forth. And in that year that they did not have their head coach, they went on to break the record for the most games won in an NBA season, 73 wins. And some people look at that and go, uh, well, that just shows when you have that much talent, it really doesn't matter who you shuffle in as a head coach, the team will be fine. And I could not disagree more with that perspective. Uh, I believe that Coach Kerr created such a culture, a strong winning culture, that he was able to step out of that. And the next man up mentality, which happened to be Luke Walton, everything ran perfectly without him that they were still able to execute the culture that he helped build and create, even though he wasn't there. And I think lots of times as leaders, we want to feel so important and so needed that if we step away, the whole house is going to crumble. But that's really just serving our ego. You know, as you mentioned, with the current crisis going on with, with the coronavirus, I know there's a lot of leaders right now that wish, uh, now that their whole workforce is working remotely, 
would wish that they would have given some more empowerment and, and autonomy to their people when they had them with them and are really sweating bullets right now because they don't have the confidence that their other people are going to be able to lead and make good decisions as effectively. Uh, the, the folks that did that brilliantly before, just look at this, this whole new normal of working from home is just a, you know, this is just a curveball that we have to be able to manage. It's not a big deal. We were successful when we all met in an office and we'll be successful all working remotely because I've instilled a mindset with my people on how to make good decisions and how to live out this culture. And um, we're seeing a lot, of, uh, a lot of character revealed during this time. We're seeing you know, uh, where a lot of companies stand. And, and certainly, I want to be able to acknowledge with this, this current situation that this is something that no one's gone through before. So I'm not in any place to judge um, what people are doing because they're all doing what they believe is best for themselves and their businesses. But I do know, um, as I look out, and, and when we first started getting some rumblings that this might be a difficult time, there were some businesses that immediately started making cutbacks and layoffs and, and cutting, snipping pennies. And I was like, man, that's not the type of company I'd want to work for. Mm -hmm. That the moment things start getting a little bit tough, they start, you know, uh, throwing stuff off the boat. That's not cool. And, and I'm not implying that, that businesses aren't going to have to make some of these cutbacks. I mean, they may have to, but uh, a lot of it is on, on how you position it. And I think the businesses that will not only survive, but will thrive from the coronavirus whenever this is over, it's not necessarily the product or service they sell. It's not necessarily how big they are. It's a matter of did they create the type of culture that can withstand this unprecedented adversity? And we're going to see the end result of that in two, three, four, six, eight months. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think um, a couple things uh, off of what you said. Number one, I would I would challenge our listeners right now to do the activity that you do in your workshops and say, raise your hand right now. If right now, while you're listening to this, you're nervous about your athletic team or your corporate team that you lead and how they're, they're showing up outside of work. And that's not a call out. That's not to say uh, you've done a poor job if you're raising your hand. It's a moment to say, let's reset and refocus so that when we come out of this, we come out of it stronger than before. Because I can think of two teams right now that I work with. I've talked to their coaches within the last week, and one coach has expressed that We've, we've worked with them for the last three years. And she was expressing to me that her whole goal in working with our organization was to create a player-led team. And yes. so whether it's working with us or working with anybody, she came in with the intention of saying, we want a player-led team. And so she shot me a text message as soon as this happened to say her players texted her before she had to text them to say, coach, we want you to know this is what we're doing. We got the message that we're off campus and this is what we're doing to keep each other accountable, to stay connected, to make sure we're following. Like, she had already given them, they're in their off season right now, it's a fall sport. She had already given them their, their spring schedule and routine. So instead of waiting for her to give them an updated one, they said like, we've adapted it to make this work for spring. And she was just overjoyed that that was the reaction. And I talked to another coach, and I won't name either, but I talked to another coach who was the complete opposite, who was expressing that her team was not doing that at all. And she had not heard back from them yet and was really trying to grapple with how do I connect with the team? And before I even said it, she had her own reflection of, oh, I guess like this is, 
this is a reflection of finding better ways to connect and engage. And I, I, I don't have a leadership committee or a group of captains or whomever I lean on and recognizing the importance of that. So I say that I give those two examples to say both those coaches are phenomenal. And, and this isn't, if you're raising your hand right now, it's not a call out. It's, it's a recognition of, uh, and I know you didn't say that. It's a recognition of saying, okay, this is this current situation is teaching me this is an area I need to improve in as a leader. Yes. And, and, and we should, do that when I come back. And we should all welcome that. I mean, this is something that no one saw coming. I mean, e even folks that, that are prepared for the worst in a variety of situations, if you would have polled everyone a year ago, uh, I don't know that many people would have said, we're going to have a global pandemic that's going to shut the world down for half of a year. I mean, we just didn't see it coming. So um, give yourself some grace and some compassion uh, if you're having trouble navigating this. But, you know, as I do believe that many times people make things much more difficult than they need to be. Now, in, in full disclosure, I have never been a CEO of a company where I'm in charge of and managing lots of people. Um, but I'll tell you right now that if I had a small company or I had a big company, um, Here's what I would have done. I would have made sure that as the CEO, and, and I understand if you're Amazon and you have 120,000 employees, this isn't necessarily going to apply to you. But let's take the average business that has 100 employees. Uh, I would have called each one of them as early in the process as possible. And the very first thing I would say is, you know, Bobby, I want to check in and see how you're doing and see how your family's doing. Make sure everybody's healthy and, and optimistic and okay. Uh, two, uh, I want to know that now that we've made this change and you're going to be working remotely, do you have all of the tools that you need? Is there anything that you need from me so that you can do your job at home to the best of your ability? And if there is, I will do everything in my power to get that to you um, as promptly as possible. I also want to lay out some expectations. Now that things are different, here's some of the moving parts. You know, when you were in the office, I needed you to do A, B, and C. But now that you're at home, I also need you to do D and E. Is that something you're comfortable doing? Um, I also want to make sure that you know that I'm going to stay in great communication with you because as we've seen from this coronavirus, uh, things can change very quickly. I mean, you know, in one week, you and I are doing speaking engagements and two weeks later, the entire world has shut down. So please know that I'm going to stay in great communication with you, Bobby, and I'm going to constantly reach out and give you updates. Uh, I don't want you to feel in the, in the dark or, or have any ambiguity to what we're trying to do. And I'm gonna be proactive and I'm gonna set up a few different, and this is where it would be very business specific. You know, I'm gonna have a Slack channel that you can check into regularly. Uh, every Monday morning, I'm gonna hold a, a Zoom call and I can give kind of a state of the union of where we are. You know, just, just this would take 15, 20 minutes to make this call, but I would show you that I care about you as a human being first. I would acknowledge the fact that it's okay that you might have some anxiety and some worry. And I would tell you that while I can't make any promises, uh, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure you and your family are taken care of during this. And we're going to get through this together, that, that we're walking through this hand in hand. This is not, I'm going to be fine because I'm the CEO and good luck to you, you know, and, and communicate these messages, offer support, be, you know, and, and if you're able to do that, um, now, first of all, the only people that would do that would be the ones that had already created a great culture. Uh, that's not, that phone call is never going to come from someone that had a weak culture in the first place, but that's the way that you preserve culture in a time like this. And, you know, all I know is if I was, if, if roles were reversed, if I was the employee and you called me and said those things to me, 
when I hung up that phone, man, I'd be ready to walk through fire for you. I would say, hey, you know, the CEO just called me and, you know, I'm five places removed on the org chart and he cared enough to check in to see how I'm doing. I'm going to go to war for this guy right here. And I think that's incredibly important. And that's the way it should be done. You know, a CEO shouldn't get a trophy for doing that. That's what they should be doing. That's what a leader does. And certainly any sport coaches listening, you know, you can extrapolate that to how you would talk to your players in the same regard. You know, what is, let them know that you care about them as a person first and an athlete second. Uh, let them know the expectations of what you want them to be doing while they're on quarantine. Ask them if there's anything that they, you can do to support them. You know, do you need a piece of equipment? Do you need, like, and, and it's not necessarily meaning you can do everything that someone asks, but you're simply putting yourself out there and letting them know if you need support, even remotely, I've got your back. And then just comfort them, letting them know we're all in this together and I will be checking in with you regularly. Um, I know lots of CEOs, unfortunately, would think what I just described would be extra work. And they'd say, I don't have time to do that extra work. And what I'm saying is that's not extra work. That is your work. That is the primary work. Everything else on your to-do list is secondary to taking care of your people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one I love, uh, it's, it is the work and none of what you described requires any resources other than time. No money, uh, no, doesn't matter the, the size of the company. Sure, like you said, if it's, if it's a huge, huge, huge number, uh, quite frankly, there's a cool story and I'm, I'm not gonna remember the numbers, but the CEO of Campbell's Soup used to, when he was the CEO, would write handwritten notes to all his employees, every single one of them. And the employees that they have is in the thousands. And I'll see if I can look it up and, and put it somewhere so we get the actual number. But that was a great story to say, it doesn't matter the number. That is your, he would say, that is my job. You know, he would get his, his uh, administrative assistant or his employees sometimes would call him out and say, geez, you're spending a lot of time on these letters. And he'd say, it's, it's a part of my job. And that was during when times were good. And so now when times are, are not great, um, Simon Sinek had a great post recently where he said, the number one thing we need right now is empathy because it's having empathy for our bosses, empathy for our employees, empathy for the cashier at the grocery store that is getting paid minimum wage, but is still going to work every single day. Empathy for the doctor who has family at home worried about her or him or, or just how, like going to work every day and, and reaching out and saying, I wanna to talk to you during this time is, is showing that empathy, is saying, I know you're a human being and not just employee X of this company. Um, so I love that. And we've talked a lot about what those leaders can do during this time. Um, what I wanted to get into kind of my final round of questions here is, um, you are someone that I think as, so yes, we've talked about your performance coach. From what I can tell, you practice what you preach from a place of routine and discipline, um, how often and regularly and consistently you meditate. Uh, you had posted quite a bit about your uh, diet for a while when you were doing intermittent fasting, you name it. Uh, you had a great post on Facebook that I read this morning, I don't know when you posted it, but about creating a routine for your new normal. And so why I, why I wanted to get this interview done today was because you do represent 
um, a lot of folks, it's, it's easy for someone to get on here and talk about their routine if they are a single individual who is, you know, uh, a strength coach, right? But you're not. You're, you're a father of three. You're an active father of three. You're, you are your own business owner right now, and you are committed to still being someone who is in incredible shape mentally, physically, spiritually. So I'm not trying to inflate your ego with this intro to this question, uh, but I want to paint the picture for listeners why you're someone to follow when it comes to this. So I'd love to hear, maybe it can be a routine or maybe just guidance for people that are now parents, business owners, employees, even student athletes who are now home and left to their own devices. They don't have a boss or a coach telling them what to do, where to go, how to show up. How do they create their own routine to keep, in your words, raising their game during this time where they're home? Well, a couple things come to mind. Um, one, and, and I'll start with what's really helped me out over the last few years. And, and as I've gotten older, um, I've tried to simplify things. You know, I, I do think people tend to overcomplicate things. And many of the programs and things that are sold online, personal development, they're almost too complicated because that's how that person makes themselves feel like they're worth what they're selling or, you know, that the basics have been around forever. So I can't sell those. So the only way I can sell something is to make it shiny. And as I've tried to simplify my life, here's the way I look at it, Bobby. Uh, I'm 44 years old. I try to picture the man that I want to be 20 years from now, who is going to be the 64 year old Alan. And, and I just have this loose vision of who I want to be. Uh, at 64, I want to be someone that is mentally, physically, and emotionally fit. I want to be someone that has a very strong connection with his children, his family, and his friends. I want to be someone that is doing what he believes is meaningful, purposeful work and is serving others. You know, those are kind of the big rocks of who I want to be. And almost every single decision that I make in my life, uh, I run through a binary filter of, is this making this decision right now, is this going to take me closer to being that guy or is it going to take me further away from being that guy? And when I can put it through that filter, most decisions become really crystal clear and really easy. You know, uh, I want to be physically fit when I'm 64. So do I want to skip this morning's workout? Well, if I skip it, that's not taking me closer to being that guy. So no, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, same thing, you know, what am I going to eat for lunch? Am I going to eat something that's, that's healthy or am I going to eat something that's unhealthy? And, and the reason that I prefaced it with almost is I'm not trying to live a perfect life. Uh, I couldn't even if I tried. Um, so yeah, there'll be times where I choose uh, to take a day off because my body's tired or I choose to have a burger and fries because that's what I want to eat. But I don't do those things very consistently. I do those things very sparingly because I know that the more consistently I can make decisions that are in alignment with the person I want to be 20 years from now, the more likely it is that I'll become that person 20 years from now. What I do with my children right now is all focused on, am I planting seeds and laying bricks for me to have a very fulfilling, connected relationship with my kids 20 years from now and they're grown? Uh, am I planting the seeds in my business right now that if I choose to be a professional speaker 20 years from now, that I'll be doing it at the highest level possible? So I think that's really important to view the world through that binary filter. And I'm choosing to make that even a smaller filter now during this quarantine. You know, whenever this thing is over, it could be in three weeks, three months, who knows, but I'm committed to being better when that finish line approaches than I am right now. So I have to ask myself, what am I doing right now that's going to allow me to get better? Now, clearly, most of what's happening in the world right now is beyond all of our control. 
Uh, I don't think any of us would put ourselves on house arrest just out of our own volition. We're doing it because we have to do it. And as much as that may suck, we still choose the response to that. We still choose what are we going to do every day that we are on this, this social distancing quarantine, hoping and recommending that folks are making decisions on a daily basis that make sure they'll come out of this even better. You know, one of my big worries, aside from the virus itself, is how damaging this is going to be when folks come out of this if they've increased their anxiety or their depression or, you know, uh, they, have, they, they were starting to get themselves in good shape. And as soon as this thing started, they stopped working out. And after four months of this, they're back to being in poor physical shape. And then they feel bad about themselves. Like there's so many things that can get unrailed when our lives are disrupted. I want people to try to take some control back and say, yes, I can't, my normal used to be this, this, and this, but it ain't normal anymore. So now I have to create a new normal. If I'm going to be in my home for the next three weeks, what can I do to come out on the other end, the best version of myself? And, and I don't have all of those answers. And there have been times where I've even felt like, oh my God, the sky is falling. This is awful. And I've, I've you know, kind of stewed in my own poo for a little bit, um, but I'm, I'm quick to get myself out of that. You know, I, I give myself the grace and compassion to go, Alan, if you want to be in a bad mood for a couple hours and think the world is coming to an end, help yourself. But then after about two hours, buddy, that ain't going to help you. So you might as well start coming up with something more productive. So I don't try to suppress any of these feelings. Uh, but generally speaking, I have an overwhelming sense of optimism and positivity right now, because I firmly believe that when we get out of this, the world will be better than we've ever seen it. And uh, I'm not saying that on, on with, with any type of, you know, a hidden agenda other than I really believe that. I believe that when the pendulum pendulum swings this far in one direction, it's gonna come back this far in the other direction. So if my life is pretty decent now, given the chaotic circumstances, my life is going to be phenomenal a year from now because I've laid the foundation for it to be so. Yeah, and I love that. That's, that is, that is like I said, it, you're, you're a, a realistic optimist. You're not, or, and you said eternal optimist. It's not just positivity. Uh, jargon it's it's real for you and and it's grounded in a, such a beautiful explanation of it if my life is decent right now when I get out of this it's gonna be fantastic and that's that's so beautiful um, uh, I love your answer uh, kind of full circle of it's getting back to the basics and you are spot on that there are so many uh, programs out there that seek to overcomplicate personal development and quite frankly, I think it's, it's through no fault of the individual creating it. I think it's their desire to want to add so much value. And like you said, it's got to be shiny and cool. And I got to teach you something you've never heard of before. And it, it creates a situation where, like you said, you're overcomplicating it. And I, when I was really young in high school, I got the opportunity to see uh, Lou Holtz speak. And he had just released a book. And the book was like 300 pages long. And he starts the speech by saying, the only reason this book is 300 pages long is because my publisher said it had to be and, <laughs> and 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 then he and he proceeded to basically talk about basic principles of success that he learned over the years and I think that applies right now part of my question is selfish because uh, I um, have been asked by several of the coaches I work with to put together 
basically a coaching program for their athletes. So typically when we work with a team, I'll meet with some of usually the captains or the leadership team anyways, over the phone or in person if they're local to say, let's meet to make sure you are doing what you need to do to lead this culture we've created or are creating with your team. And now those coaches are saying, can you do that over the phone and maybe help those athletes stay on routine with what we asked them to do. So it's not necessarily culturally anymore. It's just for them individually. And I sat down just last night, sat down, do some deep work. Let's get into what I need to do. And I came up with one page of, of questions that I want to ask the athletes. And I walked away and I was like, I think this is really good. And it is incredibly basic. It is incredibly simple. And so I ran it by, I've run it by some coaches and Ryan who I work with and people I know to kind of seek their feedback. And everyone's feedback has been that, that the same, right? Like, hey, it's, this is pretty simple and it's good. Like we don't need to go beyond that for so many I people. love that. I well, love if that. I can add one thing, because I think it's very important to add this disclaimer, because you and I have been talking a lot about the basics and things that are simple and fundamentals. But I want to make sure people know that basic and easy are not synonyms. Yeah. Many people use those words interchangeably. For me, the mindset and optimism that I have to approach this is very basic in principle, but I don't want anyone listening to this to get it twisted and think that I'm saying that this is easy to do. Uh, I also realize, you know, um, and I don't like playing the comparison game for good or for bad, but I realize along the broad scheme of things, you know, during this coronavirus, you know, um, I, I have it fairly decent. You know, I, I've, uh, I, I'm not being laid off from a job. You know, somebody that I know, you know, isn't passing away from this virus. You know, I'm not quarantined away from my children where I can't see them for a month. You know, there are some people that are going through some, some adversity that's really challenging. And I don't want you to think for one second that I'm saying that it's easy for you to be optimistic or it's easy for you to be positive. You know, I could see somebody now giving the screen the, the finger going, oh, this guy thinks the world's gonna be better. Who is he to say that? My life sucks right now and I, I can appreciate that. All I'm saying is you still choose your response no matter how awful the situation is and no matter how that it's not in your control, you still choose what you're going to do with it. And what I would hate to see people do is take something negative that's happening now. You know, I, I lost my job um, and compound that by then adding a negative mindset and making it even worse because that snowball is going to roll no matter which, which hill you roll it down. Are you going to roll it down a positive hill? Are you going to roll it down a negative hill? So if you do go through something really adverse right now, you've got to be willing to start approaching it differently so that things will get better over time. But I don't want anyone to think that I, I don't have empathy or compassion or that I think any of this is easy because this whole thing is a mess. Uh, but I do believe that optimism, realistic optimism, and daily diligence to becoming your best self are about the only tools you have at this point to get out of this whenever it may end. So yeah. um, I do know that a lot of people are hurting and a lot of people are struggling and, and my heart goes out to them and I hope they find the strength to still persevere no matter what. I love, I appreciate Alan that you, you added that nuance that you shared that because it is so true. We definitely do not wanna sound like we're speaking in a vacuum of, the only challenge right now is getting yourself up out of bed and doing your morning workout. Um, there are some people that have, the, the reason we're being quarantined and social distance is because this is very, very real. And, and, um, and whatever, what I like to say too is whatever your challenge is right now, 
it's your challenge and your challenge is your biggest challenge. If your biggest challenge right now is, is legitimately dealing with a positive test for coronavirus, then, then, then our heart goes out to you and you find the resources you need to, to, to get through that. And if your biggest challenge right now is you're a student athlete who has been sent home for the season and you now got to get yourself out of bed and do an online class and do your own routine, don't belittle that. Because I've been talking to some athletes who will say, ah, you know, almost their way of dealing with it is what do I have to complain about? And it's like, okay, if that attitude serves you, great. But if that attitude is your cop out for not allowing yourself to feel something, then that's, that's not serving you. Like it's okay to be disappointed and sad about losing your season. And now let's get, let's get back at it. Uh, It's okay to, to have, days where you just allow yourself to get in your head about all this and do your best to get off your phone, get off social media, get off the news, do your workout, do your meditation, do whatever it is you need to do. Like you said, come out of this stronger. Uh, Ryan and I were just talking on the phone the other day and I said, when I, I've torn both my Achilles in the past three years. And um, I, when I tore my first one, I was uh, almost fired up about it in a weird way like I wasn't fired up but as an athlete there was a sense of like like I'll take on the challenge let's get through this I signed up for a full Tough Mudder race like in preparation of I'm gonna get over over this and back in shape ran the race with my brother got a picture like recovered then I tear my second one many months later unrelated to the race and I was defeated in that moment and I had a lot of people saying to me you know what like you're in that 30 to 50 age range. Maybe you should stop playing sports, stop running races, stop competing. And what popped into my head was this will not be my story. My story will not be, I tore my, I had injuries when I was younger. And then, like you said, you're thinking of yourself 20 years from now. My story 20 years from now will not be, I used to be an athlete, but then I got in. My story will be, I persevered through that and became stronger for it. And Ryan and I were talking about that in regards to our business. Our story will not be in 20 years, we used to run a really awesome business and then the coronavirus happened. Our story will be, here's our success story and this is a part of the journey was this coronavirus. And for you, for anybody listening, maybe you have been laid off from your job. I'm not saying go get that job. I'm saying 20 years from now, you will be out of this. You will have moved on. What will your story be? What will that Victoria story be for you? The new job, the new life, the, the, how you helped your kids through it. So many people right now, you and I are Virginia, our neighboring state, just already called it. Schools are out for the rest of the semester. And a lot of parents are freaking out. How are they going to help their kids be able to learn and grow so that they're on track for that next grade? And instead of allowing, like 20 years from now, the story won't be, my son's an idiot because of coronavirus. It's going to be, we persevered through that moment. And I think that's the important message. It's not everyone has their challenge and whatever your challenge is, create that story that says I made it through this time. Yes. And no matter what happens, large or small, you have to pick the response that will move you forward. Mm. I mean, that's the key. Uh, Again, I, I can't say it enough. I have so much empathy and compassion if someone does get laid off Uh, from their job. But once that becomes fact, okay, you no longer work there, you are laid off. Now what option do you have? You know, and I'm not just saying about try and go and apply for another job. I mean, what are you going to do that next day? If if you want to keep the the blinds down and the covers over your head, and you need a day to kind of wallow in self pity, that's fine. 
but then the next day, what are you going to do? And mm -hmm. if you continue down that track, it's not going to help you. But if you say, you know what, now I've got some more free time. I'm going to read a book or I am going to get a workout in that I hadn't been doing, or I am going to start working on a new skill set. And unfortunately, uh, it's hard to do that. But, but resilience and grit are like a muscle. I mean, they get better when you practice and you, you get used to those things. I mean, um, I, don't, I don't wish any massive adversity on myself. I'm not psychotic. <laughs> but I also know that I know adversity is going to be coming. And I actually, like you did with your ACL, I, I kind of get excited to have new challenges. Uh, when the, the coronavirus stuff first hit, uh, I first you know, had that moment of weakness and panic and go, oh my God, I'm not going to be speaking for the next 12 weeks. Oh my God, what am I going to do? And thankfully that passed really, really quick. And I said, you know what? I'm going to look at this as a game. Uh, my primary way of making income has now just been temporarily benched for a while. What else can I do to be of service? How can I help other people? How can I give to other people? Because when this ban is lifted, uh, I, that's how I want to be thought of and remembered. I want people to say that, man, when things got really tough, you know, Alan was willing to help us out with this, or he was willing to jump on a call and help us with this, or he sent us a video of this. And things will eventually get back to normal. So I think for most people, and this is normal because it's self-preservation, when things get bad, we just start looking internally at, oh my God, what does this mean for me? What do I need to do for me? How do I protect me? When for the most part, we need to step outside of ourselves and start thinking of how can we help others and how can we be of service to others? And eventually when things self-regulate, uh, I, I think that will, that will have proven to be a very, very good decision. So. Uh, whatever happens now and for the next several weeks or months, do your best to take a deep breath and then pick a response that will move you forward and pick a response that will take you closer to being who you want to be 20 years from now. Yeah, that's fantastic, Alan. That's why I wanted to, to, to break my in-person rule and do the Zoom because obviously we could have, you know, we live close enough where we could have postponed this and done it in person. And I really wanted to get your insight and words of wisdom for folks right now. I think it's going to help a lot of people. So thank you for, for being willing to do that. Um, how do people, especially now, how do people get more Alan Stein Jr.? Uh, how do they search you, get in touch with you, find your book? How do they find you? Well, it's funny. This morning I just launched a page that's just allensteinjr.com backslash free. And there's a whole bunch of free resources on there. I'm not selling anything. I'm just trying to put some information out there. Uh, there's a virtual keynote. Uh, there's a, a filmed live keynote. There's a bunch of curated video clips. There's a bunch of downloadable PDFs. Um, and this is stuff that I, I firmly believe will be of benefit, uh, certainly to folks in the corporate space, but to parents, to athletes, to students. Because um, I just wanted to make sure, you know, I've had so many people uh, help me during times where I was facing some adversity or when I needed some help that I always want to be that to others. Uh, and I'm at Alan Stein Jr. on all of the major social handles. So um, I don't have any need from anybody other than I just want to be of service and try to share some good stuff. So I'm so glad we were able to connect. Uh, I look forward to sharing this episode with my audience and certainly anybody listening, uh, hit me up on social or check out that free resources page and, and I hope you find it valuable. That's awesome. That's a great, so yeah, at Alan Stein Jr. on all social and then alanstangjr.com backslash free. I'll put that in the, the show notes that we have for the episode itself. That's so cool. Um, last thing is, uh, final question I ask every guest is, do you have a, uh, a, a 50 cups of coffee story? So 50 cups of coffee, the idea is 
you're connecting with people similar to how you and I connected. I reached out due to a mutual friend to say, I really just want to learn from you and, and what you're doing since we're in similar uh, industries and worlds. And, um, but it's not always professionally. Maybe it is just, I often say to people, the idea behind 50 cups is you're having 50 conversations with 50 people in a year. And that might sound like a lot until you consider I'm including your three kids. Uh, I'm including yeah. your spouses. I'm including your parents. Are you connecting with them? especially now more than ever. Uh, again, usually I encourage in person, but now more than ever, are you calling your, your family just to say hi right now because we're all distanced right now. So uh, when I say, do you have a 50 cup story? It can be something where because of this interaction, you were introduced to somebody that got you into performance coaching or into speaking, or it can be something where you say, you know, you've been taking more trips with your kids I've seen on social media um, because of this car ride I had with my, my sons, um, this is something that came out of it. If you look at something in your life and say, this beautiful thing came out of it because of connection. Well, I don't know if this is exactly what you're looking for, but here's, here's the way I look at it. Um, I've told this story numerous times, but back in 2008, I had a chance to meet Coach K for the first time. And, and he was, I mean, absolutely my idol as a young coach. And uh, after having a chance to chat with him for a little bit, I, I went home that night and I hand wrote him a thank you note. and Three weeks later, he had sent me a thank you note back. And uh, I'm, a very, I'm a minimalist at heart. I don't have a lot of physical possessions. Uh, relationships are what's, and experiences are what's most important to me. Uh, but this handwritten letter that I have from Coach K is one of my most uh, valuable prized possessions. And I tell this story all the time on stage. And uh, at the end of every event, um, usually a week or two later, there's always a very small handful of people that handwrite me a thank you note based on the fact that I told that story. And you know, what's remarkable is I might speak in front of an audience of a thousand people and I'll get three handwritten notes. You know, I told a thousand people how important it is to write a handwritten note and three out of a thousand write one. And, and over the last several years, I mean, I've, I've got a really nice stack of handwritten notes and I've read every single one of them and I, I keep them in a special um, kind of like a Tupperware box in my office and, and I just kind of peruse them every now and then. Uh, not to inflate my own ego or anything, but I peruse them because it reminds me how important connection is. And I don't take for granted that I said something on stage that day that made someone feel compelled to show an attitude of gratitude and write me a letter. And that means the world to me. I mean, that box of, of thank you notes, many of which are from people that I don't know, um, it means the world to me. And it, it speaks volumes of what you're talking about, about this connection, that little things make a huge difference especially in this time where we're social distancing and quarantine, you know, uh, calling someone that you haven't talked to in a year and a half might seem like a real little thing to you. But at that time, it might be the pick me up that that person needed. You know, you might randomly call someone that you went to college with Bobby, and they're really struggling with this right now that this Coronavirus and this distancing and maybe they lost their job. And your call at that moment in time is just what that person needed to spark some optimism and to get them going. And to you, it was 15 minutes of your time, wasn't that hard to dial the phone. And to them, it could actually change the trajectory of their life. That's big time. And, and I don't ever wanna take for granted how important these connections are. And when I think of a lot of people that have taken time out of their day to connect with me or to show me some gratitude, I mean, you know, even for you and your audience to invest you know, close to an hour's worth of time to hear what I have to share that I don't take that lightly. I'm incredibly thankful for anyone that's, that's listening up until this point right now, uh, because you just invested an hour of your most precious resource 
into what Bobby and I are talking about. And I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. So um, when it comes to the 50 cups of coffee, I, I do hope this is something that spreads, reach out and try to build connections and forge stronger relationships with people. I mean, that's, that's what makes the world go around. Awesome. That, that, that fantastic story. Perfect way to wrap this whole thing up. Um, I can't thank you enough, Alan, for just all the guidance you've given me. You're definitely a mentor to me uh, in this world of, of speaking and training and development and just, just, just being a human being uh, and doing the best you can every day. So thank you for that and thank you for being flexible. The first, we, we were scheduled to meet in person before this went down. I got stuck yeah. in Iowa during a snowstorm there and you were nothing but uh, gracious and flexible with, with me having to reschedule. And then the same was true for being flexible for, for hopping on Zoom here. You're the, you are my first uh, interview podcast on Zoom. I imagine the first of many as we, as we find ourselves uh, our way out of this, this coronavirus situation. So thank you for, for helping me lead the way on this. This was awesome. My pleasure. Thank you, brother. Awesome. Thanks, Alan. Thank you for listening to the 50 Cups of Coffee podcast. This is a journey that started with a TEDx talk back in 2016, and I am excited to share my 50 cups of coffee with you in 2020. If you are enjoying the show, please subscribe wherever you are listening. We will drop a new interview every Monday. Please give us a rating and review if you are so inclined. It means more to us than you know. And connect with me on social at Bobby Audley. If you are interested in learning more about our peak performance coaching program, DM me and I will get back to you right away. My phone is basically glued to me during this time of social distancing. This podcast is a production of the Pinot Training Group and our theme music is by Matisse Soy. To learn more about the work we do with teams and organizations, please check us out at pinottraininggroup.com.